0: Shabbat shalom, everyone, and mazel tov, good Shabbos. So I have to admit that I hate driving in the car with my kids. Put aside the fact that they all drive and are convinced that they know how to do it better than me, what I really hate is fighting over the radio. They like 99.9 and I like NPR. But the other day I was with them and I offered a middle ground. On the satellite radio, there are stations devoted to the best music of every decade, or at least, what passes for music. Wise to my ways, they preempted me and said no to the best of the 80s. And so I struck back. We went 70s. I was certain that in five minutes, they'd be crawling out the windows to put an end to it, but I was wrong. Apparently, the, the respondency of the Eagles, Captain and Tennille, Tony Orlando and Dawn, and yes, even the Bee Gees, is never to be underestimated. And so I stand before you in this morning, a humble and chastened man. But as I got to thinking about it, I did love the 80s, the years of high school and university for me, but my path to growing up actually began in the 70s. It was in the 70s when I begged my mother for a velour tracksuit to wear to school, but she wasn't as very British and told me that no child of hers was going to go out in public wearing pajamas. My sister, in the 70s, begged my mother for a pair of Jordache jeans and she told her that no child of her was going to go in public wearing clothing that made her look naked. I remember going to see Rocky three times in one summer and competing with my friends to see who could remember all the words to summer nights from Greece. Yes, this is a record of my wayward youth. But I also remember in 1978 going into Crown Heights, Brooklyn, seat and center of the Chabad movement for a Shabbat. It was a world filled with black robes and black hats, no televisions, televisions, many people didn't have phones in their homes, most people didn't get newspapers. On Saturday evening, when Shabbat was over, we gathered at the shul to hear the now deceased Lubavitcher Rebbe give his address, called a Fabregin, and he spoke only in Yiddish. Men and women were completely segregated from one another. Now, I grew up in a traditional Jewish home, but this, this was a world completely different from what I had come from. And you know, all this came back to me this past November, when on the UJA Federation Centennial trip to Israel, a small group of us left the hotel Friday night at 11 p.m. to attend a Hasidic Tish, or celebration, in the heart of ultra-Orthodox Jerusalem, Me'esha Arim. People stood side by side on bleachers that filled the synagogue with a table at the very center of the room. The Rebbe came in, they sang to him, and he then went about recreating the Shabbat meal that he had just eaten with his family, that he would now eat with his followers. He spoke and they sang, black robes and black hats, no Hebrew. Remember, we're in Israel, only Yiddish, no women, only men. After a few hours, we left back to the hotel and I told the group the old joke that tiny Israel has actually two time zones, the 21st and 17th centuries. People chuckled, but they now understood it was more than a joke, it was true. Or think of it this way, does Judaism expect allegiance or compromise? And I don't think this is a small question, I think it's a very large one and it's one that will grow larger in the lives of our children and grandchildren. The future of Judaism may very well depend on how you answer it. And this is echoed in the Torah portion that we read this morning. You know, I was for first taught this book of the Torah, the third one in fact, when I was all but six years old, in keeping with the old tradition. But I have to admit, I hated it then. And I unabashedly approached this portion and nearly all the ones in the book of Leviticus with the same measure of loathing which gives my profession and the fact that i have to speak on the weekly torah reading and the fact that this torah portion represents 20 percent of the entire torah could end up being the basis for a very sad country song <laughs> because this book is nothing like genesis or exodus genesis with its stories of creation and flood abraham jacob love hate lust sin and god Or Exodus, with its idea that God sees all humans as equal. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the Exodus. Or even the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book, where Moses, this man who complained to God 40 years earlier, that he wasn't a man of words, now fills an entire book with his last words to the Israelites before he dies. And they are words of pathos and hope and fear and sadness and acceptance. But Leviticus, Vayikra in Hebrew, has little of that. Instead, it is filled with the story of burning incense, slaughtering cows, sheep, goats, oxen, and birds as devotion to God, of ideas like pure and impure in short, all the kinds of things that are so removed, not only from the 21st century world that we live in now, but even from any notion of 17th century Judaism. It's fair to say that these things, sacrifices, are not only removed, but also anti-ethical to the kind of Judaism that plays out in this world and that has meaning for us. So year after year, I have stretched and strained to find a point of meaning in these words that could somehow and would some way touch you and me. But this year I have to acknowledge that maybe I've taken the wrong route. I want to lay out a better answer. And like all good answers, it begins with a good question. Why do we even bother reading Leviticus? Because it is so irrelevant to our lives. The story that breathes life into this question is this. King Solomon, we are told, built the first temple almost 3,000 years ago. It was destroyed and rebuilt, only to be destroyed again by the Romans 1,900 years ago. Today, when we go to the Western Wall or Masada, they are artifacts of what was destroyed, but not what had been built. We can't see that anymore. Those temples were the religious center of ancient Israel. When people were happy or mourning, they went there to worship. When people had sinned, they went there to worship and seek forgiveness. When there was illness or famine or drought, the nation turns its eyes to the temple in Jerusalem, hoping that the worship in God's house would reach and move God to cure or to make the rainfall. So when the temples were destroyed, Judaism was faced with a shattering reality. Did the destruction of the temples mean that they could no longer worship God? And let's be honest with one another, if you read the Torah strictly, literally, According to what is written, the answer would have to be yes. That there was no way of worshipping God anymore. Without the temple, there could be no worshipping. Because how could you worship God without incense, priests, and sacrifices? In the Torah, there are no prayers. The Torah makes no mention of prayer services or a prayer book. In the Torah, there are no Torah readings. No rabbis, no cantors. Sorry about that, cantor. Nothing that could even reliably hint at what might take its place. And yet here we are. Shabbat morning, and I'm asking you in a few minutes to turn to page 360 before sitting down. And a little while after that, I'm going to ask you to stand as we turn to page 368. And so on and so on. And that's because a little more than 2,000 years ago, a group of brave men who we now call Chochmei Yavne, the Sages of Yavne, declared that no longer would we offer worship with sacrifices, but that we would worship God with our hearts. From that point, the work began, work that stretches literally over thousands of years of writing and creating prayers. They did that because they refused to let go of God. It is, as Elie Wiesel once said, that a Jew can hate God and a Jew can argue with God, but a Jew cannot ignore God. And all of that work is found on the pages of this prayer book that you and I hold in our hands. Is it any wonder that if we accidentally drop it, our tradition asks that we kiss it? So with all that in my mind, let's go back to the question. Why do we even bother reading the third book of the Torah, the book of Leviticus, Sefer Vaikra, when it is so deeply and profoundly foreign in how we approach God? Well, to be honest, some will tell you because of the hope that one day the temple will be rebuilt and the incense and sacrifices and priests will all begin again. But I believe that nothing could be furthered from what we really believe. You see, I think the reason why we read this book isn't because we hope one day to return to it, but because it is a reminder of just how we have changed and how we continue to change. It tells us that change doesn't uproot us from our tradition because our tradition is in fact rooted in change. That you don't have to choose between the 21st or the 17th century, which always struck me as funny because I always thought that people living in the 17th century, if they had a chance, they'd kill to live where we live now. So better you live in the 21st century and bring some of the past along with you. And the ancient rabbis knew that when something had come to its end, and, and they had the honesty to leave it behind, they also had a story for it. The story goes that when the ancient temple was burning, the Kohanim, the priests, climbed to the roof and threw the gate keys to the temple up to the heavens.